0: Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway, which explores the impact of key political developments on the European Union and the United States. Our show is a joint production by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi nelson
1: And I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreud. In the United States, the race for president is already underway, and one party appears to have latched onto a key U.S. ally as a campaign scapegoat. That party is the GOP, and the ally is Germany. As one of our guests today notes in her recent article, for Republicans, Germany is a useful fodder in their electoral crusade against the Democratic Party's weakness and wokeness, in air quotes.
0: Joining us at our Berlin studio to talk about this scapegoating and more is the co-author of the article, Maida Ruge, who is Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations.
2: Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Rounding out our discussion is Suda David Wilp, Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund and Director of its Berlin office. And she is also in the studio with us. Welcome, Suda. Thanks for having me.
1: Maida, since you're the author and I already quoted you, Let's just start with the basics. Which Republicans are targeting Germany and why?
2: Well, since we're starting with the article, let me just kind of get straight to those that we quoted there, uh, since they are the kind of vocal minority, if you want. Uh, Senator J.D. Vance, who was elected in midterms and replaced the very kind of traditional conservative bipartisan, Senator Rob Portman, And Richard Grinnell, who many of us know as ambassador to Berlin during the Trump uh, administration. And then Elbridge Colby, who was the assistant secretary for defense during the Trump administration. And I would say kind of most generally... Um, the sort of Republican discourse that we were responding to in the article, so this is the recent one, that started with Trump in 2016, really comes from these camps in the Republican Party that are riding on the grievances where Germany and European allies are a huge part uh, of the narrative depicting allies as freeloaders who have kind of taken advantage of America through unfair trade agreements, ripping America off and taking advantage of America's security guarantees. So we have a bunch of influencers, if you want, from the MAGA camp, including Steve Bannon, Rick Grinnell. And then we have the senators such as J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, et cetera, who are basically being very vocal about the huge investments that United States is put in into Ukraine specifically, whereas the wealthy allies uh, who are should be much more concerned with issues and the war in Ukraine are not contributing enough.
1: So you mentioned the Trump term as kind of an origin of this. Traditionally, or at least in the last few decades, I think it might be fair to say that U.S. Democratic presidents have been a little closer to Germany and Republicans and German chancellors have had their issues is it really distinct this time, you think, or is it in a tradition?
2: I think we need to separate maybe two parts of this critique. What is a legitimate point of critique and which part is about campaigning in the upcoming elections and scoring political points? And so I think if we're looking at the legitimate part of the critique, which is really the critique of European NATO allies not stepping up in military and defense and not spending, not reaching their Wales and Warsaw NATO obligations and commitments, that is a longstanding grievance that is bipartisan. And if you think back 12 years ago, I think, um, where the Secretary of Defense, Gates, who served both under Bush and Obama administration, basically delivered a speech criticizing Europeans. And if you listen to his language, it could be delivered in 2022 and 2023. He was speaking, I think, in 2011, right as it became obvious it was in the context of Libya bombing when the NATO allies ran out of ammunition after 11 weeks. And it became clear that Europeans could not sustain the operations without kind of continued American injection of support and the language Gates used was practically what you could expect from Republicans today. There's kind of a fatigue in Congress. America is exhausted and disappointed and does not see NATO as a useful investment, will not for much longer. There's a kind of two tier membership in NATO of those who are free riding and those who are contributing. So I think on that point, it's a bipartisan longstanding grievance Where Trump escalated it is precisely on this political point where he actually made it part of the electoral debate, which was not just to kind of ride on the grievance against the freeloading allies ripping America off through trade agreements, but also to portray the Biden administration as weak by definition of kind of alliance with the Europeans and tolerance of what they're doing.
0: So what can or should Germany be doing to counter the Republican narrative?
3: Well, I think the main point of a contention is that Germany has not reached its 2% commitment in terms of spending on defense as a proportion of GDP. And that was a commitment that was made in 2014 during the Wales NATO summit. So, you know, there have been other points of friction in the past. Bipartisan. Nord Stream 2 is one of them. Um, relations with China is another one. Germany's trade surplus, but also the defense spending has been a long grievance in the transatlantic partnership. And so I think with Germany's Seitenwende, there's been an automatic change, for example, in terms of relations with Russia. Nord Stream 2 is no longer a topic. And also Germany is also looking at China with a different perspective than just two years ago. But the fact of the matter remains is that the country won't reach 2 percent this year, and it is unlikely next year as well. And it could be a point of vulnerability for Germany with regard to the Republican Party as well as the Democrats. But the Republicans are just more vocal about it.
0: Well, you mentioned, you know, some of the things that perhaps take the wind out of the, the Republican campaign trade. Uh- Sales, excuse me, is what I'm trying to say. But does it make a difference for the Republican leadership that Olaf Scholz is chancellor? I mean, they were never fans of Angela Merkel. But here you have Olaf Scholz, who basically talks about a stronger military and Seitenwender. So does that kind of take the wind out of their sails?
3: No, as I said, I think there is a perception that um, Germany is undergoing transformation because of the Seitenwende. That's something that Chancellor Schultz ushered through. But I don't think there's a real differentiation between political parties. In fact, I think some of the Republicans really like Annalena Baerbock, for example, from the Greens, because she's so hawkish um, when it comes to China and Russia. I think that the question just is, is Europe going to be able to bolster its defense capability so that it could handle itself in a conventional sense without so much engagement from the U.S. so the U.S. can concentrate on the Indo-Pacific? And will Europe and Germany also be a pragmatic partner when it comes to facing China?
1: Some Eastern European partners are using some of the Conservative or Republican talking points to kind of bolster their own anti-Germany, anti-Brussels narratives. A good example of this is Viktor Orban from Hungary, where recently the CPAC conference uh, was held. And he, at the conference, sort of portrayed the battle against liberalism as a transatlantic one.
2: We are all under attack in Europe as well as in America. I have to tell you, this attack is not of an economic nature. We are dealing with a biological weapon developed in progressive liberal laboratories.
1: So, Maida what kind of impact are either the American narratives having on the Europeans or is it the European narratives, Orban and co, that are having an impact on the Republican narratives?
2: I think it probably goes both ways. The kind of circle of friends around Viktor Orban in Hungary, I mean, his team is already very much looking forward to the possibility of change in the White House starting January 2025 with the hope that that will be one of the Republican conservatives. And the reason being is we've mentioned this anti-weakness and anti-wokeness narrative in the Republican Party. And so on the weakness part, obviously, the Europeans are associated with Biden because he's tolerating their underspending and they're not stepping up on defense. So they're portrayed as weak on defense. And the anti-wokeness agenda basically looks at all of the issues where there's really strong domestic grievances in these culture wars and projects it internationally and so there is in the Republican party this fascination with conservative populist Christian Leaders in Europe, you mentioned Viktor Orban, I mean, there's also in the past been a considerable fascination with Vladimir Putin as well along the same lines. And it all basically ties together in this kind of, if you want, transnational struggle against liberalism, whether it's on the culture wars like gender, education, or on social issues issues. You know, many of the Western European liberal democracies are seen on, you know, on the blue side of the American culture wars. And countries like Hungary, obviously, there's many more of them outside of EU. I mean, Serbia, for instance, uh, is another example. I mean, there's plenty of Western Balkans, kind of illiberal authoritarian rulers that are taking a page out of Orban's book and pursuing the same kind of anti-immigration, xenophobic agenda through which they're trying to connect to this conservative circles in the Republican Party and are, in fact, already looking to establish ties with campaign teams, people around Trump or DeSantis, precisely to promote a common agenda based on this kind of struggle against liberalism.
1: Suda, one country that wasn't mentioned uh, in the list Maida was discussing is Poland, uh, which is an interesting case, especially after the beginning of the Ukraine war. But they have a very conservative government and they have traditionally been very anti-German, or there's a lot of sort of anti-German resentment in the country and in the government in particular. And they're a country that's also very closely aligned with Washington. So do Republican anti-German narratives feed into the Polish debate in a way that looks worrying to you from Berlin?
3: Well, I think this also has some connection. For example, if you look at the GOP, even under President George Bush Jr., He, you know, had Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, who made the division between old Europe and new Europe. And I do think that there is a lot of enthusiasm for the Eastern European countries who are not afraid to spend more on defense, are working hand in hand with the United States in terms of protecting the eastern flank of Europe. And I think that there is certainly a narrative that's also being spread from Polish visitors, Polish dignitaries when they visit Washington. But you know, let's also not forget about Germany. Just recently, there was a meeting between Governor DeSantis of Florida and a CSU delegation. So it's not There are also pockets of the German political landscape in terms of just being practical that they want to get to know the players and not be surprised if there's a change in the White House like they were very surprised in 2016, but also because there is a like-minded ideology, there is a common ground, if you will, between conservatives in Europe and conservatives in the United States. Maida, you wanted to add something?
2: Well, I think just kind of going back to that point of DeSantis standing there with the cup, with the Bavarian flag after the meeting, I think all of the Europeans are trying to, just to kind of specify what the difference is maybe all of the Europeans will be hedging starting now until the elections and afterwards and trying to establish connections. I mean, we had the transatlantic coordinator at the foreign office going, he he visited Florida and tried to speak to people around dissent. They're all trying to understand what is going on, what the implications are going to be, and establish these sort of ties. When we talk about leaders in Europe like Viktor Orban, who have been purposely kind of undermining the EU from within, whether on rule of law, whether on immigration or Russia, Ukraine, I think there the risk associated with these sorts of connections is that a Republican administration, say under Donald Trump, would hugely legitimize them and strengthen their position in Europe. And the offshoot of that is that the agenda to undermine the EU from within, especially on the rule of law, is going to be strengthened.
0: Suda, so uh, in the US, domestic issues were certainly front and center during the midterm elections. Is there a point of diminishing returns for Republicans in focusing on Germany?
3: You know, I'd be really surprised. I mean, stranger things have happened in politics in the last couple of years. But I can't imagine that Germany is going to be such a central focus of um, a presidential campaign. I mean, certainly Donald Trump made it one when he criticized Angela Merkel on the campaign trail. But for the most part, you know, it's always kitchen table issues when it comes to presidential elections. The only time I can remember a foreign country playing a role is it's always China, of course, in terms of trade. And then, of course, Japan in the 80s, a fear of, you know, sort of losing competitive ground to Japan. But I'd be very surprised if Germany is a focal point for a presidential candidate. That may not be the case when it comes to President Trump on the campaign trail. But I would think that if Governor DeSantis or somebody else does get the nomination, that they'll try to move towards the middle for the general election.
1: Maida. On Suda's point or Suda's answer, if you have anything to add, but also what about the Democrats? If the Republicans do sort of try to make an issue out of Germany, do you think the Democrats will be tempted to enter that debate in any way or will they just avoid it?
2: I'd think they'd probably avoid it and not get dragged too much into debates about Germany. What I think is that the way Germany might kind of become on foreign policy front a central issue is not because Germany will stand in the center, but indirectly. Because Ukraine, and especially trade-off between assistance to Ukraine and what we're as U.S. not delivering to Taiwan, is going to dominate the foreign policy discussion. My colleague Jeremy Shapiro and I have written this article on the tribes in the Republican Party, identifying kind of three different camps on foreign policy. And you have one very, very important and vocal tribe in the party. We've called them China prioritizers. And if you look at what they're saying, and they're particularly mad at Germany and at Berlin because they are genuinely worried about the prospect of war with China by, say, 2027. And their position here is that the allies are, even those that are stepping up, say, Japan, that has increased its military spending, they describe it as too little, too late. They are obsessed with the trade-off basically made between giving huge amounts of assistance to Ukraine and not being able to replenish the stocks and deliver what's needed to Taiwan. And if you ask them, basically they say, what needs to be done is we need to move heaven and earth to bolster Taiwan's deterrence posture, and that needs to have happened yesterday. And so in this narrative of... You know, prioritizers where DeSantis seems the closest to, but Trump is moving between the restrainer camp, which is focus on home, and the prioritizer. I think no one is going to be able to avoid this question of China and Taiwan. And in this narrative, the question is, if we need to really take this seriously and transfer the the resources to Taiwan, who is going to step in and fill the void in Europe? I think admiring as it is what Poland and the Baltic countries have done in terms of their defense spending, they're not big enough. And so all eyes are just by definition towards toward Germany. And I think that is how Germany is not going to be able to avoid being part of this debate because the expectations are, you need to have our back in Ukraine.
0: We're gonna take a short break. Stay tuned for more discussion about Germany in the US presidential elections.
1: I'm Rachel Tausendfeind, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972.
0: Hello, this is Abby, presenter and co creator of Berlin Briefing. Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. We curate local top stories and present them in an eight to ten minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway. In today's episode, we are talking about Germany becoming fodder for the GOP and its campaign strategy for the 2024 elections. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson of Common Ground Berlin. And I'm Rachel Tausenfreund
1: of the German Marshall Fund. Joining us for today's discussion are Maida Rugas, Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR, and Suda David Wilp, Senior Policy Fellow at the German Marshall Fund and also head of our Berlin office. Suda, I'm going to start with you. Actually, we ended before the break on Ukraine. Are the Republican attacks on Germany and Europe's lack of action or lack of sufficient action in Ukraine or sufficient support, what impact are they having on general support for Western Ukraine looking ahead to 2024?
3: Well, I mean, I think overall there's strong support for Ukraine in a bipartisan manner. But I think it is obviously, if you look at the numbers more deeply, there is a bipartisan split in terms of support. You see more Republicans losing sort of their favoritism towards supporting Ukraine. There is more of a lackluster when it comes to supporting Ukraine. But in terms of Capitol Hill, I think that the Senate there is strong support for Ukraine from both sides of the aisle. It's the house where you have more of a contentious debate, but Speaker McCarthy on a recent trip to Israel spoke very strongly for support for Ukraine. So I think it's really just hard for him to manage his caucus because there is a strong group of people within that caucus that question supporting Ukraine and have, I guess, more sympathy towards Vladimir Putin and also don't want to see the U.S. spending money on Europe when Europe should handle this conflict by itself. Maida, what do you
1: think from the European side? The Europeans are also watching these statements. Um, Is it changing anything in their support for Ukraine, in their speed?
2: Just to kind of reiterate what Suda said, the opinion polls are showing, I think, that about 62% of Republican voters would support ending this war very quickly, even if it meant ceding the parts of the territory to Russia. And that, as opposed to Suda's book about the Congress and the divide between the Senate and the House. But I think the larger divide is between the generally congressional elite and the frontrunners and the Republican kind of base that is going to vote in the primaries. So I think just there, we need to watch the primary candidates and the frontrunners, unfortunately, are... um, You know, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis both taking the position that Russia's threat has been exaggerating, that Ron DeSantis has changed his tone from being very hawkish on Russia during his time in Congress to now following and adjusting to the base, just to make that point. But can I just
3: interject here? I do think that Governor DeSantis made a statement that he walked back a little bit now and also kind of left room for some interpretation. Yeah. I think he realizes, too, that, you know, he's catering to the base now if he does actually become a candidate, he hasn't announced yet, that he needs to tack to the far right during the primary process, but he's leaving space to move back to the middle. I don't know if he can achieve that, um, but right now it seems even hard to think that he's going to be the nominee because President Trump is just so far ahead in the exactly. polls. Exactly. Yeah. Well,
2: let's talk about the base for a moment. Or I'm sorry, did you want to add? Well, only one point. I think it's going to be interesting to watch because you asked about the European um, reaction. Are they, rea- you know, are they reacting? And I find Europeans being really engaged in wishful thinking every single time you speak to European diplomats, whether you know in in Washington or government officials here. Most of them are clinging to the words of Mitch McConnell that he delivered at the Munich Security Conference, where he said, do not look at Twitter, look at us, look at me and Kevin McCarthy, look at people in Congress. So they're kind of clinging to this idea still that the congressional elite represents uh, America's view. And I'm afraid that as we go through Republican primaries, that's not going to be the case. On the other hand, I think that the NATO summit in Vilnius in July is really going to be a limitless test for Europeans because NATO Secretary General has announced that they are going to set new targets for military spending and that 2% is going to be a floor rather than a ceiling. And depending on what happens there, if President Biden manages to get the Europeans to sign up to more ambitious spending targets, that will be great news. But if he fails and we don't get that commitment, I think that is going to provide even more ammunition to Republicans to kind of continue this narrative.
0: Well, uh, you mentioned the base earlier, Suda, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about what public reaction has been. And a Pew Research Center survey last month found only 35% of Americans have confidence in German Chancellor Olaf Scholz doing the right thing when it comes to world affairs versus 29% who expressed no confidence. And then when you look at it just from a partisan standpoint, even fewer Republican respondents had confidence that Scholz would do the right thing versus uh, Democrats. And another interesting note is that 35% percent of respondents overall hadn't even heard of Olaf Scholz. So (laughs) so my question is, does making Germany a scapegoat help the Republicans in their effort to win at the ballot box? Or isn't it like preaching to the choir? I mean, or is there a way to win over Democrats with
3: this uh, narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more just since President Biden has really had such a soft touch with Germany, And it seems to have worked. I mean, like I said before, North Stream 2 is not an issue anymore. He's somehow cajoled the Germans to also send their tanks and the heavy weaponry. But it could also, in terms of a backlash, have a negative effect on Germany for the Republicans because the Republicans might say, Look, Biden is just too soft on our allies. It's not a fair deal. They're being free riders. And how long can we do this? You know, the Berlin Wall is down. Ukraine is a problem for Europe. They should be able to take care of their own neighborhood. I mean, I think. You know, there is an understanding that there's the nuclear guarantee, but what about Europe stepping up conventionally? And I do think that, in my opinion, the United States always has to have sort of a manager role because the relations between, you know, Warsaw, Berlin, and Paris are so fraught. But there is obviously some legitimacy for saying, well, you know, you've got to pull your weight um, when it comes to NATO, because this is a one for all, all for one kind of um, endeavor. And it's unfair for the United States to take the lion's share of spending when it comes to this shared security.
0: Maida, I think you wanted to add something? Just to say
2: that even beyond security, it fits. And even, and I'm not surprised by the percentages of Americans who've never heard of, of Olaf Scholz, I think that's less relevant as much as how Germany will fit into this big grievance narrative, which is much more about grievances of. The Republican base, how have we been taken advantage of by so many of our allies and partners, which fits into this threat. We have this threat coming from our southern border and immigration. We have these wealthy nations in Europe that are doing nothing and not even spending, you know, 2 percent of their defense when the war is raging at their borders. So without knowing them particularly the leaders or even being able to point to Germany on the map, I think it's more of the emotion that's being created. And that's precisely where Trump has been so successful in 2016.
1: Maida, sort of continuing, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the Republican narratives, but as you argue in your piece, Germany is not faring as poorly as the narrative would have us believe, right? Germany is stepping up. Um, and in fact, the German government, in various forms or representatives of the German government, have been entering the debate and fighting back. So we had recently the Twitter spat between J.D. Vance, you already mentioned J.D. Vance, the senator from Ohio, who had called the site Zeit- saying it quote materialized into manure. Uh, <laughs> interesting. And the German ambassador uh, in Washington fired back, and she you know cited some of the achievements: the Sondervermögen, the special fund, uh, the weapon procurements and the dramatic energy shifts. I mean, is this going to be something we'll see all throughout 2024, kind of Republicans and then German government officials spouting opposite points on
2: Twitter? You know, it will... Obviously, in the American context, and the context of the D.C. discussions, Emily Haber has been great. You also have to remember she is about to retire. And uh, I think each ambassador before retiring becomes more vocal than before. But, you know, I think she's just a type of person who insists on facts and pushes back. We have a new ambassador coming in uh, in July. Well, summer this year. I don't know exactly when. Um, the state secretary, Andreas Michaelis, and from what I have seen until now, I think he's going to be pushing back robustly. And there is a lot to push back on. I think it's really important not to conflate the two separate issues which Republicans, you know, like J.D. Vance and Rick Rennell are purposely doing. Um, the issue of 2%, I think, is a legitimate criticism and I think Germany, regardless of the Republicans, I mean, this is one of our conclusions in the peace. we need to do that for ourselves, given the amount of security challenges that we're facing, not just on the eastern borders, but also in the south and MENA. If I think back to the end of the war in Bosnia, this is another region that I work on. When the war ended and Dayton peace agreements were signed American uh, government had kind of committed and sent 60,000 peacekeepers to a country of 3.5 million and the EU back then had committed uh, in the Helsinki pledge to having an 80,000 combat-ready kind of force, EU force, for deployments in such crisis situations. And the current EU strategic compass is back at 5,000. So I think very seriously, we need to take this as our own national security interest rather than an issue that we need where we need to please Republicans. I think on the other bit, the support to Ukraine, this is where the narrative really needs to be corrected and where there needs to be a pushback because German contribution in reality is much higher both bilaterally and not to forget that Germany provides 25% kind of contributions to the total EU assistance to Ukraine. And so I think this is probably going to be the focus um, of German diplomacy, no matter who sits where.
0: We talked a little bit about, you know, what the Republican narrative has been and after Dwight Eisenhower's landmark victory in 1952 that cemented US-European relations, every Republican presidential nominee for the following six decades embraced internationalism over isolationism. That, of course, changed with 2016, and Donald Trump just broke that mold. And we've talked about some of the candidates, like uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He seems to be continuing, he and others seem to be continuing that approach, which raises questions about the benefit of transatlanticism and whether defending Ukraine against Russia is really in the U.S. interest, which we've also spoken about. So, do you expect that this Republican skepticism over international alliances – that this will ultimately
3: shift American focus away from Europe. I mean, the shift is already tending toward the Indo-Pacific. I mean, that's even something that President Obama announced. Um, But, you know, things changed over the years. He called Germany sort of an indispensable partner. And now with the war in Ukraine, um, transatlanticism is seen as a very necessary relationship um, for both sides of the Atlantic but I do think that President Trump is still different when it comes to the GOP and alliances. They're thinking on alliances. I think most Republicans see the benefit of NATO and collective security. We don't know what Governor DeSantis really thinks on international topics. I think we still have to wait and see when he comes out and I think Nikki Haley as being ambassador or her former role as ambassador to the U.N., I do think she sees the value of coalition building and other um, candidates like Chris Sununu, if he runs, for example, they will sort of hark back to the traditional internationalism. But President Trump has definitely unleashed a certain strain in the Republican camp that's always going to be skeptical now. And he sort of tapped into that feeling of restraint and let's end the forever wars, and let's think about America first. And I think that's going to be something that is going to exist in the United States, not just for the Republican Party, but also for the Democrats to some extent.
1: Maida, Suda mentioned a few of the other candidates, aside from Trump and uh, DeSantis, who was more of a known figure than we actually uh, sort of tend to treat him as foreign policy-wise. But what's your sense right now, if you had to guess, if the Republicans? win in 2024, and especially if they win having used Germany as a scapegoat, as you argue in your article, what follows from a Republican presidency in 2025 in terms of German-U.S. relations?
2: Well, I, I think maybe to start by saying that if the Republicans win, there's clearly many contingencies between now and then, and much can happen. So without trying to predict who is going to win. But if we look at the two frontrunners and we assume that one of them would win the nomination and then go on to win the general elections and, and go into the White House, I think that they are going to be advised by a foreign policy team that either comes from a camp arguing for greater restraint or more likely what is probably going to be proved to be a sort of an equilibrium between the restrainer camp and more internationalist camp, we call them primacist, is the China prioritizers. And if I had to put a bet on one certainty that is going to define the American foreign policy under a Republican president, it would be acting on reinforcing military uh, strength of Taiwan and changing the military balance in the Indo-Pacific, which would mean shifting the resources from Ukraine to Taiwan. If that happens, it is obviously going to be probably the most important aspect of the relationship with Germany, everything else inside. So I think we come back to the question, what can Germany, together with other Europeans, and there's, you know, we haven't talked about it, but there's all of these intra-European disagreements on, you know, how do we step up? What sort of sovereignty do we want? Is it Macron's or is it the Polish idea, which is more strategic partnership with the US? Um, So I think we're going to have a really difficult time actually doing what needs to be done to at least not face a complete cold Turkey and also to be less vulnerable to America's dictates under Republican administration on other foreign policy issues. So if you think how dependent we are on Ukraine, for, on, on Americans for Ukraine, the Republicans see that as connected to issues on trade and strategic industrial policy on China. And so they will be linking up these policy issues together and you know requesting demanding much more for instance on security and strategic industrial policy on China if Europeans want to avoid another trade war. This is going to be a defining element much more brutal transactionalism coming from the side of Republican administration and just much, much lower threshold of tolerance for being a security and defense laggard.
3: Sudo, we're going to give you the last word. Is there anything else you want to add? So I think you have to take President Trump out of the equation because that obviously will be very detrimental to the U.S.-German relationship. Of course, there are other avenues of and channels of communication with subnational leaders, etc., but it will definitely put a huge dent in the U.S.-German relations. But what Maida just described is also going to be difficult for Germany to square off with when it comes to uh, the Biden administration. There's already um, frustration about the IRA. At some point President Biden is also going to have to demand that Europeans toe the line when it comes to China. I just think the tone is different, of course. You know, like I said, President Trump is a whole different level. But I think with the Republicans and the Democrats, you're not going to see a ton of difference except when it comes to the tone and the pressure. Because as I mentioned before, President Biden takes a behind the scenes soft approach, which has yielded results.
0: That was Suda David Wilp, Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund and Director of its Berlin office. Thanks for joining us today,
3: Suda. Thank you, Soraya and Rachel.
1: And thank you, Maida Ruga, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for having me. It's been great pleasure
0: discussing with you ladies. I'm your host, Rachel Tazenfreund. And I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. Transatlantic Takeaway is a joint production by the German Marshall Fund in Common Ground, Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. In addition to Transatlantic Takeaway, all Common Ground Berlin and GMF's out-of-order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check out our respective podcasts websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org.